you're doing great things in this building today. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So just jumping right on into our Ezekiel series. And so uh, over the past few weeks, we've been on this journey walking through the book of Ezekiel. Typically, us as a church, we love walking through books of the Bible, and what's more normal for us as a church is that we walk through, um, uh, minimally, we like to walk through it chapter by chapter um, and just be able to see the overall arching um, uh, design of what God is doing inside of certain books. We like to jump back and forth between Old Testament and New Testament because there's value, great value in each of those. Um, if we're not doing chapter by chapter, then we're able to possibly move thought by thought just to see more in-depthly and understand exactly what God is doing inside of a book. That allows us as a church to not just skip over things, things that are uncomfortable for us to talk about. We get to see who gets God is in the midst of his word as we talk about these things. That's something that I really value um, about us as a church is that we highlight God's word, that we, are, um, that we are focused on God's word. And that is something that is so important to us. Um, in the midst of, of the book of Ezekiel, we're approaching it a little bit differently than we typically do many other books. We have taken this book in the Old Testament, which ends up being 48 chapters, and we're condensing it down to seven sermons, seven times that we get to talk about this. And so it is really our goal to, um, to not get lost in a bunch of the details that we find in Ezekiel. Now, I don't want to say these details are unimportant, but it is so easy to get lost in some of the stuff that, that you see in the book of Ezekiel that you miss the big picture of what's going on. And so it is our goal to just do a 20,000 foot flyover of Ezekiel so that we're not so high that we miss the important details but we're not so low that we're lost in the weeds, but we're hovering right over the book to say, God, what are you doing here? We want to learn from you. We want to see exactly what you're doing. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. Preaching today brings me a lot of anxiety <laughs> because um, Ezekiel scares me. Uh, I, I need you to know I didn't choose to preach through this book. Uh, that was Matt, our lead pastor. And, um, and there's part of me that thought he was a little bit evil in asking me to come up here and teach this book. Um, and so half of you in this room are like, great, what are we in for? Uh, I have a little bit of confidence about where we're going today, so don't tune out on me yet. But, but Ezekiel is a crazy book. You get through the first 12, 11, 12 chapters, and you see some visions that are absolutely nuts. I remember a conversation we had on the staff team, and I, I told Matt, I was like, Ezekiel's absolutely crazy. I, I don't blame the Israelites for looking at this man and saying, he's He's lost it, right? Because Ezekiel is crazy. And Matt looked at me in his very smart ways. He says, Ezekiel's not crazy. Uh, he's just doing what God says to do. And so he's in the right mind. He's just obedient to God. So I looked at Matt. I said, so God's crazy. Okay, that's how this goes. Um, anyway, uh, we, yeah, so we were, I don't even know where I'm going now. Uh, I, I'm totally lost. But, um, but we are taking this 20,000 foot flyer. We're hoping to pick up the main point of exactly what um, Ezekiel is talking about. What we've seen so far, we've seen this, and we're confident in this, is Ezekiel is a prophet, a prophet that God speaks to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel speaks to the nations. Now, this is something that might be a little confusing for us in 2018 about exactly what a prophet is. 
Because post the death of Jesus, we live in a time frame where we do not have prophets like we see in the Old Testament, like Ezekiel, right? So after Jesus died on the cross, we have the Holy Spirit that's living inside of us. All of us individually, with the Holy Spirit living us, if we're followers of Jesus, we, the Holy Spirit is our prophet in our own hearts. We don't need individualized prophets. But before Jesus, the Holy Spirit wasn't living inside of hearts yet, so God spoke directly to these prophets who spoke to the people, and they had a choice to obey or disobey. And that's exactly who Ezekiel is. He is one of these Old Testament prophets. Um, at this point in Israel's history, when Ezekiel is speaking to the nation of Israel, it's about 600 years before Jesus. And they are experiencing a, uh, a cultural crossroads, if you will. Uh, they've, um, they have been God's chosen nation, and they have experienced prosperity on many levels being God's chosen people. But their prosperity has led them to live an adulterous lifestyle before their one true God. Now, this is a pattern of the nation of Israel. If you've read any of the Old Testament, even leading up to Ezekiel, you see God setting the stage and the people walking away from God and, and, and then someone, a prophet coming in and resetting it all and they get realigned and then they, they get jacked up again and then God resets it and then it's just a pattern over and over and over again. But in the midst of that, God has been interacting with his people. They have experienced lots of prosperity in the midst of being God's chosen nation but as they walked away from their one true love we're walking into a confusing time for the nation of israel as the nation of babylon is coming in and conquering israel they're capturing israel and they are taking them off the prosperity that they once experienced for so long has changed at this cultural cultural crossroads but the big question, as we've dealt with Ezekiel, is where is God in the midst of all of this? And uh, it leads us to the title of what we've given to Ezekiel, Real Hope Where False Hope Has Failed. Yes, we have seen up until this point God's hand, and it's been heavy against his nation. But as we continue to walk forward, it is going to be a glorious thing that we see as God is pointing to the future, as he is pointing towards Jesus and saying, I have not left you forever. But what Israel's walking through is a tough time in their history. There are three flows in the thought of Ezekiel. If you've been around, you've seen this graphic, um, this, this artwork, and we have more pictures of these artworks in the back and in the Welcome Center. So if you want to grab one when we're done or if now you want to go grab it, feel free to do it. But three flows of thought within this 48-chapter book. What we've seen at the very beginning is the glory of God. And we have spent 11 chapters, so two sermons over 11 chapters, really pointing down to the fact that uh, God's glory glory is the center of Jerusalem, and we see that all throughout the entire Old Testament, but because of their adulterous hearts, the presence of God is leaving Jerusalem and leaving the nation of Israel, and they have been abandoned up until this point because of their choices. 
God's glory has left. And then we get to the second flow of thought here where judgment comes. Last week we saw that God is judging the nation of Israel because of their choices. And then today we're going to talk about how God is judging the nations around Israel, that surround Israel, for, uh, for his own purposes. And we'll get into that in a minute. And we're going to spend the last three weeks looking at the future hope and the future promise. Because the story doesn't end where, we, where we're talking about today. The story continues. And I hope that we see a lot of good in the fact of what God is doing for us as we're um, moving through this book together. Ezekiel is primarily a um, prophetic book, but it's also very historical. So for, for us, um, it's good to look back at history and learn from history. As I get older, I, um, I learn to appreciate history. I, I don't know uh, about you, but whenever I was in school and whenever I was sitting in history classes, um, they put me to sleep. Like, I just wanted them to be done. Just tell me what I need to study. I'll study that. I'll get the C on a test, right? And then you can pass the class and you get to move on, right? And then I'm, I'm older now, and I'm like, I, I get to see historical things with, as I'm traveling across our nation or I'm seeing things going on in the world, and, and I'm fascinated by it. So my family this summer went over to Fort Clatsop, and, um, and I got to, to see the fort. Now, I know this isn't the actual fort that Lewis and Clark stayed in. It's a replica, right? But I'm looking at this, and I'm, I'm envisioning them living inside these quarters. I'm like, man, this is so cool. I, I know that this wasn't here, but Lewis and Clark actually stood right here. And I'm looking at my kids. I'm like, do you guys get it? They're like, Dad, you're an idiot. Why is this such a big deal to you? I'm like, you'll get it one day, kid. Then I remembered I'd never tell my kids that because my dad always said that to me, and look at me being my dad. Um, <laughs> but standing in Fort Clatsop, like, I, I really felt like I connected to the Lewis and Clark story, right? So it, it's fascinating to me. I don't know about you, but sometimes whenever I drive over to government camp and I'm going through the mountains, I can't help but think about how the pioneers were on a, a wagon train, right? Bringing all their stuff through the Cascade Mountains to plant right here in this area and think, oh my gosh, what was that like? And just kind of thinking a little bit through this history. My only connection to the Oregon Trail growing up, you know, I grew up in Texas, so I know a little bit about the Alamo. I didn't know anything about the Oregon Trail other than the, the computer game, right, on this big, giant, boxy computer to where I died of dysentery every, every single time, and I'm like, okay, I, this must be a thing. Cholera got me again, okay. Um, but landing, in, landing inside, you know, be, being excited about history now makes me learn from the past and be connected to the past. And I think it's good for us to look back. So we're standing in 2018 and we're, and we're looking at Ezekiel. We're looking at this book that teaches history of what God did in the nation of Israel. And it's good for us to look back and say, what happened there? What was going on there? What can we learn from that? Though it's good to be progressive in a sense in our mind frame to where we just continue to progress as a culture and as a nation, but we can't forget about the past. We always can learn for what was going on. And questions come up like, where did the presence of God go? Why did he leave them? Where were their hearts in the midst of all this? What can we do to ensure that we don't repeat the same thing? Because God hasn't changed. So 
how can we easily fall into those traps? And so that's what looking at this book has really been good for us. So uh, on this graphic, we've spent you know, two weeks talking about the glory of God and then um, the judgment conversations. And today, again, we're going to be seeing how God judges the nations surrounding Israel. Um, question for you. How many of you guys in this room would consider yourselves competitive? Um, on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, judge the person next to you uh, about how competitive <laughs> you think that they are. Are you the type of person who um, may, maybe you're a humble winner? Um, if you're a humble winner, that means you're just used to winning. And it's kind of like <laughs> a humble brag. And you're just like, oh, I just do this all the time. It's not a big deal, you know? It's okay that you lost. I don't judge you for that. Are you a humble winner or are you a boisterous winner, right? Uh, these are the people who rarely win, but when they do, they let the world around them know that they just won. Um, maybe you're not either of those. Maybe you're just more of an angry loser. Um, <laughs> some people just don't, they don't care about winning. They just better not be the one that's losing, right? Uh, maybe you're, you're none of the above. Um, I think for myself, my nickname should be second place because uh, when it comes to athletic stuff, like I, I'm, God gifted me naturally. I can keep up with most athletic events. The only thing I can't do is like speed card games. You start busting that out and, I'm, and, and I, I quit before I, that even starts. But anything involving a ball or frisbee or whatever, like I, I, I can keep up, right? But there's always someone that's going to beat me. Like, I'm always right. I can never get over that hump. I, I, and I think that um, my nickname should, should totally just be second place, right? Um, and I, I was thinking about that because what I'm seeing in the, the nation of Israel, what's going on is, is Israel is God's chosen nation, right? And so all the nations that are living around Israel are pretty much second place, right? They, they, uh, they do not have the, the blessings that God has given Israel. So they're standing back and they're always being conquered by Israel or they're always seeing God do amazing things around them. Their gods don't quite live up to the gods uh, that, that they celebrate or that they worship. They always knew that the God of the Israelites was the strongest of all gods. I can only imagine what was going through their minds as they watched that and as they looked at what they worshipped compared to what the Israelites worshipped and, and how did that shift and change what they believe. We see how God has protected the nation of Israel over history, right? We can look back to the Exodus. So you get to the second book of the Bible and you see the nation of Israel being freed from Egypt and the Exodus events happen and God shows up. God protects them. God walks with them. Then we leave that story and we get into the book of Joshua and we get into the book of Judges and we see how the nation of Israel is establishing itself into the promised land and God is bringing down walls, not because of a great strategy of a plan for, for war, but because people are marching around a wall and God just brings the walls down. I mean, these are the kind of things that the nations around them are witnessing and they're seeing. We see King David the, the man who is labeled the man after God's own heart. We see God protecting him, walking with him after he was pursued and pursued and should have been killed so much earlier because of what was going on in his life. But God protected him, watched him become and led him to become the king of Israel. 
who set Israel in motion to be a powerful nation. All glory to God. Yahweh God was different than any other God that man could create. He was the, sin, or he was the creator of all the stars. He was creator of the earth. He was the creator of the mountains. He was the creator of the waters. God created all of it, and that was the God of Israel. And they experienced it in a very powerful way. But for the nation of Israel, we could look at it from that angle and say, man, they had it well, right? But things weren't always peachy for the nation of Israel, right? The people's sinful tendencies were always at war with God's holiness. God had dueling passions. So, um, sorry, I'm going to get us caught up here. God had dueling passions. He had a passion for his righteousness, he had a passion for his holiness. Sin cannot stand in the midst of his presence. And he was extremely passionate about that. But he also had a passion for his name. He had a passion for his glory. He had a passion for his name to be known amongst the nations. What was God to do with this, right? And we can look in the book of Ezekiel. So turn with me, uh, if you have your Bibles, to Ezekiel chapter 20. And I want us to look at three verses within this chapter to set us up to dive into the rest of what we're going to see today. So at the beginning of chapter 20, we see God's wrestle with the nation of Israel during the wilderness experience, during the Exodus experience where they went back and forth of, of obeying God, and they did their own thing, and then they built golden calves. You know, this, this story of them wanting to do their own thing, that they were the center of their own lives, and God just kept redirecting them. And, and we saw the end results of that, but what was going on inside of God's heart is this battle, this dueling passion of his righteousness and also his name. Let's look at verse, uh, the second part of verse 8 together. The beginning of that paragraph, it says, Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. So God is declaring because of his anger, because of his wrath, because of his holiness, because of his righteousness, he wants to get rid of the nation of Israel. He wants to wipe them out because he is so sick of seeing seeing their unfaithfulness. But verse 9 says, God is speaking, but I acted for the sake of my name, and it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived. God said, if I wiped out the nation of Israel, my name would not get the glory. And so I am choosing not to wipe out the nation of Israel, but I'm choosing to make my name known as I continue to walk with this rebellious nation. Chapter 20 continues, and it continues to unpack the wilderness story, and it, and it talks about that they rejected the rules that God set up for them, and we see in verse 13 and 14, then I said that I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness, and I will make a full, of, uh, I will make a full end of them. Same concept. I want to wipe them out. I want to end them. But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whom sight I had brought them out. 
Moving on down, same story, but just another repeat, verse 21 and 22. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and send my anger against them in the wilderness, but I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name. God's name and God's glory will be far superior than his righteousness. Let's wrap our minds around this. God having dueling passions for his desires is not a new concept or a new thing. We read in the New Testament that it is God's desire that all men be saved. But we know that not all men are going to be saved. These are dueling passions, right? God desires two different things. What do we do with it? We've got to walk with it. We've got to wrestle with it. We see our own selves, our own lives, right? Do we deserve to be in the presence of God? No, we deserve to be with the nation of Israel. We deserve to be wiped out. Every time we choose ourselves over God, we have the same story with inside of us, but God is choosing through the blood of Jesus to say, but for my name's sake, I'm choosing mercy over you because I want to make my name known through you, my mercy and my grace to be made known through you, not because you're perfect, but because I am dwelling with you. These dueling passions, right? God will choose his name and his righteousness, and his, I'm sorry, he will choose his name and his glory over his righteous judgment. But at some point, and this is what we see in Ezekiel, at some point, him overlooking his righteousness is actually a detriment and it diminishes his name. And at that point, God is not afraid to say, it is time to move forward. That's where we see the glory of God leaving the temple. That is where we see the nation of Israel being besieged by Babylon and being taken captive into Babylon. And the people who are living in that time are going, oh my gosh, what is happening to us? Not only are the Israelites asking that, this is the point where we're diving into today. The nations around them are watching. Second place is watching, right? Second place is seeing the nation of Israel being captive, being taken captive by Babylon, and they're saying, I knew it. God has been strong for so many years, but he is not the God of all because his people have fallen and God says that's not the only place I reign supreme I reign supreme over all of the earth and his judgment not falls only on Israel but also to the nations and I want to do a high level overview of just seeing what is going on so um Again, not wanting to get lost in the weeds, but not wanting to move too quickly. If you flip over to Ezekiel chapter 24, what you'll see there is the siege of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is beginning to to be attacked by Babylon. And the nations, again, second place is watching what's going on here. And they're beginning their war cry of victory. Even though they're not the ones attacking, they are slandering God's name to say, I knew he wasn't who he said that he was. And God says, I'm going to set you straight in that thought. 
God judging the surrounding nations. What we see uh, against the Amorites. Again, if you were to do studies on the Amorites, the Moabites, the Philistines, Tyre, Sidon, Egypt, these are very intentionally placed. There's so much going on here. Because we're doing a high-level overview, we're not going to dive in deep to the meaning of every single one of them, but these are the ones that God is pointing to. And let's look at the Amorites just for a second. So verses 3 through 5 says this. Say to the Amorites, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, because you said, Aha, over my sanctuary when it was profane, and over the land of Israel uh, when it was made desolate, and over the house of Judah who went into exile. Therefore, behold, I'm handing you over to the people of the east for a possession. You are not Israel, but you looked at Israel and you gloated over them, and I am sending someone to come capture you and take you to the east as well. And we skip down to verse 5. Then you... Amorites will know that I am Yahweh God. We continue on to the Moabites. Same story, different people. Verses 8 through 11. And thus saith the Lord God, because Moab and Seir said, Behold, the house of Judah is like all the other nations. There's nothing special about them at all. Therefore, I will lay open a flank uh, of Moab from the cities, from the cities um, to the frontiers and the country, and I'm going to lay siege on them. I will, give it, uh, I will give it along with the Amorites to the people of the east as a possession. Same idea of what just happened to the Ammonites. End of verse 11 says, God declares, then they will know that I am the Lord. Against Edom, the same thing. Against the Philistines, the same thing. Verse 15, thus saith the Lord, because of the Philistines acted revengefully and took vengeance with malice of soul to destroy the never-ending enmity. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, God, behold, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines and I will cut them off. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Then we see Tyre. Tyre gets a few more chapters talking about what's going on with them and so does Egypt. The ideas about those guys getting so much focus is the city of Tyre um, and the uh, city of, or the nation of Egypt are the two nations that they say um, Babylon could not take over. So God is saying Babylon can't destroy you but I will destroy you. The same concept, 26, 2 through 6, talks about Tyre. Son of man, because Tyre um, said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gates of the people is broken, and it has swung open to me. I shall be replenished. Now, um, she's saying that I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against you. Skip down to verse 6, the very end of that paragraph. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Again, Egypt, getting down to chapter 30. Looking in verse 20 and 26, 20 through 26, same concept. Last example, 
in the eleventh year, in the first month of the seventh day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and behold, it has not been bound up to heal it by binding it with a bandage so that it may become strong to wield the sword. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and will break his arms, both the strong and the weak one. At the very end, verse 26, then they will know that I am the Lord. God is saying, I'm not just the God of Israel. I didn't just create what's going on here. I am the God of the entire world, and I have control of everything. You have breath in your lungs because of who I am. The entire, he's the God of the entire world. He rules it all. I want to spend the remaining part of our time just talking about the global glory of God. What does it mean that God is the God of the world? What does it mean that he wants to make his name known? What position does it put us in as human beings in the midst of God's glory? So let's start off first by just seeing and knowing what the glory of God is. Now, this is one of those topics that you can put a definition to, and it's going to be lacking in some way or another. But this is something I heard years ago, and it has made complete sense to me. Well, complete sense. It has made sense to me, and it's something that I continue to to use, and it continues to blow me away. That the glory of God is his infinite worth and his infinite beauty. Now, let's just talk about his infinite worth for a second. That means God is, there is no end and there is no beginning to who he is. He has always been and he always will be. Now, I wish I could theologically explain that, but those are the kind of questions I'm going to ask God when I get there. How does all that work? That there was no beginning, right? These are the the kind of questions your kids ask you and you tell them it's bedtime, right? (laughs) You don't get dinner tomorrow either, We don't have the answers to that. And someone who tries to tell you the answer to that in a very clear way, they're they're misleading because we don't know where, where God began and how all that worked out. But we know it to be true because God has been faithful to who he said he's been from the very beginning of time. So we submit to the authority of God because he has never failed us in telling us who he is. His infinite worth. He's created all of it. He started with the nation of Israel and it has bled out. We've seen the book of Acts, how God has brought to uh, his people, to after the death of Jesus, we get to see the, uh, the apostles uh, huddling together in, um, uh, in Jerusalem, right? They were fearful of what was going on around them. And then we see the stoning of Stephen, and the people took off to the nations because they were fearful that they were going to be killed as well. That was God's missionary plan, right? To send people to the ends of the earth, all the way to Rome by the time we get to Paul's life, the end of Paul's life. And then it just gets global after that. God is known amongst all the nations. Yes, there are many tribes that have yet to hear. There are, there are um, small tribes all over the earth, and, and we could rattle those off that don't know of the name of God yet. I'm using a general term to say God's name is known. His infinite worth is seen 
Do we choose to see it or do we fail to see his infinite worth? Beyond his infinite worth, we also get his infinite beauty. And this is what makes his powerful name, his righteousness, his holiness so manageable for us is because he is so beautiful in the midst of his son, Jesus Christ. I know that we're skipping ahead, but I just want us to see in Ezekiel 36 where this story is going to go in the coming weeks. Verse, uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Moving into the future hope, the future glory. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Okay, let's just see the consistency of what's going on here. What we're about to read next is not for you and me, is not about you and me, but this is about God's holy name. O house of Israel, I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations in which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations in which you have profaned among them And the nation will know that I am the Lord, declares God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. God is saying, I've not forgotten you. I will regather you. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put with inside you, that I will put with inside you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit with inside you. And the story continues. We know what's coming because of where we live and we know how beautiful God is because of how this continued to play out, right? God is beautiful because for his name's sake, he has made his name known by saving and redeeming you and me through the blood of Jesus. And that gives us breath in our lungs. That gives us a leap in our step to say, man, God, I don't deserve this, but that's what makes you so worthy. Thank you, God, for loving and choosing and leading me and being so personally involved in my life through your son Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. I have communion with the creator of all of it. That is a beautiful thing. So, where does this lead us? Um, it's funny, in our own sinful nature, we tend to make the glory of God, well, we tend to make ourselves the center of our world, and God just hovers around us, looking to please us, looking to lead us, looking to guide us. Maybe we wouldn't say that's the way that it works, but through our beliefs, through our questions, we reflect that that's the way we think that it works. 16th century, the Copernican Revolution, right? You know about this? That in history, they used to think that the earth was the center of the solar system and everything revolved around the earth. But we realize because of the invention of the telescope that that is not the fact. The sun is the center of the earth. Everything revolves around the sun in our solar system. Somehow we've 
got the same idea that God, God revolves around our world. But we were made for the glory of God. We were made to make his name known and his name great. We were made to be in communion with him. We were made to receive his goodness and his mercy and his love to continue to allow us to get up every single day to breathe the breath of air that he put into our lungs. I want to close with just this idea of what do we mean by uh, being made for his glory. To start with this idea that the love of God for sinners is not about making much of us, but it is about making much of him. In today's world, when we're in relationships with people around us, um, we tend to like them if people make much of us. We tend to continue relationship if they have something to offer our lives to make us feel valuable. I mean, I'm going to be honest, this is the reason I pursued my wife whenever we were dating, right? It's because she had something to offer me. She made me feel special. She made me feel valuable. I was the center of her world. She may not say it that way, but I'm saying it that way. I get the platform and the microphone. You can ask her later. But you get the concept, right? Is that I, that I was the center of her world. And as much as I felt that, I wanted her to feel that she was the center of my world. And we do that time and time again in different ways with different relationships around us. And we take that philosophy into our relationship with God to say, God, I am the center of your world, right? Why would you allow me to go through this? That's where the why question comes from when difficult things happen, right? Because God has to explain himself or I don't feel valued in your sight. God is saying, you got to flip it upside down, backwards, whatever. It's not about you. It's never been about you. And I think this is where the prosperity gospel has failed us today because it was never about us. Secondly, I want us to see that, if, uh, that uh, followers of Jesus must aim to rejoice in the glory of God. The glory of God is to display his infinite worth in his infinite beauty. And as his followers, it is our lifelong passion, it is our lifelong goal, it is our lifelong journey. I say those words because we're never going to fully get there, but we continue to pursue Jesus with the ultimate aim of glorifying him because he's the center of our world. We've got to flip this in our thinking and in our understandings. Number three, hell is unspeakably real for us and for the world around us, for all mankind, hell is real. The dangers are real. It's not just a cartoon scare tactic of the devil with a pitchfork, but I'm also the first to argue that it's more than what we've made it of just a scary place you don't want to go because it's gonna be really hot, and there's gonna be gnashing of teeth. We really don't know what we're saying, but we say all these biblical words that are really scary, right? Yeah, that's, that's there, that's real. 
But more importantly, what I know about hell is that God is not there. And that's the most terrifying thing to me. If we were to ever experience a world when God removed his presence, he removed his name, then we would be parched metaphorically, physically. We'd be begging for something. We don't understand that because we're spoiled children living in the midst of his presence constantly. But hell is unspeakably real. The fourth thing that I want us to see is that worship is not to give to God, but worship is to receive from God. We have the false reality, I think many of us, when we come into this place and we sing songs to God, that we're coming in with all the good that we've done to stand before God as proud children to say, here, aren't I great? I know I'm not perfect, but I feel good. Receive it, God. I know that that's our tendencies because I know my tendency when I don't feel that good, when I don't feel like I have lots of things to offer, I come in with my head down just a little bit more, a little bit ashamed, a little bit embarrassed that God hasn't been a great week, but I'm here. Do something, right? (laughs) Worship is not to give God anything. Every single one of us in this room, no matter your pursuit of Jesus, we're all in the same playing field. We're all broken. We all need God's grace. So we come to this building and we say, God, we need to receive something from you today. We need you to speak. We need to make your name great because I don't know where I sit with all of this today. And I'm offering it all to you and saying, do something with it. It's a place we get to heal. It's a place we get to be with each other. It's a place we get to receive from God. And lastly, the joy of it is we get the help from God. God interacts with us. He doesn't leave us by ourselves. He provides for us in very unique ways. Some we see, some we don't. And he gets the ultimate glory, and that should be our aim in glorifying God, making his infinite worth and infinite beauty known to the world around us. I close with this. that At Harvest, you'll hear us say often that we exist so that all people in the world would see God's infinite worth as ultimately beautiful in Christ. We as Harvest exist so that all people would see God's infinite worth as ultimately beautiful in Christ. And what we're saying is we exist to glorify God because of who he is. I want to invite our worship team up and our ushers to to go to their places because what um, we're leading into now is a continuation of worship. Remember, it's a continuation of uh, not giving anything to God but receiving. And we do this twice a month in communion. Communion is a um, response where we as followers of Jesus come to a table together unified under the blood of Christ and saying we are not perfect but we worship you Jesus we take communion in remembrance 
of the Father. I want to go ahead and ask our ushers to come forward. Um, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you have lots of questions about who Jesus is, um, it's okay to let these things pass. It's best to let these things pass. Um, but it's good for us to remember that the bread that we're about to receive represents the body of Christ that was broken on the cross for us. So uh, with that, I want to ask our ushers to go ahead and pass out the bread.